Good morning. What is going on out there? I mean, seriously. Is this a joke? It is raining cats and dogs in July, almost August. My goodness. Hey, uh, uh, for those of you that have not seen them yet, we have a very special family in the audience today. Uh, Margot Ryan, Jeff and Jan Halgum, Heidi and Elizabeth are here today, the family of Pastor Ridge Ryan. Good to see you. Just want to say we love you, and uh, we just our, our thoughts and prayers have been with your family. Uh, we know that uh, uh, losing any loved one is difficult, but we also know that Ridge is with the Lord, and so that he he today is far better off than any of us. And I know that he would love nothing more than for us to imitate his legacy of following Christ, honoring him, and uh, just continuing forward in perseverance and in faith. So we are really looking forward to the memorial service in a couple weeks, and uh, we're just glad you're here today. Well, uh, Dave Bacon may have mentioned in the prayer that you might have caught it that uh, I had, uh, he was giving thanks to God for my recovery. Uh, Not all of you knew about this, but those of you on the prayer chain did. Uh, For those of you that didn't know, uh, I had uh, a reoccurrence, if you will, of the strep throat I had a few weeks back. Apparently, it just kind of lingered in my system a little bit, and it, it inflamed again a week ago, and it got so bad that I, yeah, this is going to be a little graphic. You guys ready for it? No? Cover your ears if you're not ready for it. That I had, I had this what's called a peritonsillar abscess form in my mouth. Needless to say, my wife did not want to kiss me for a few days. Um, it really, it was this, it was this really owie thing in your mouth that kind of grows out, you know, toward your tongue. And uh, so I go into the doctor and I'm like, what's going on in my mouth? And he says, I got to send you to a specialist. So they send me up to the specialist, this, you know, ear, nose and throat doctor. And he takes one look. I mean, he just takes the camera and takes one look and goes, uh-oh. And he starts going and he, and he, does the, he just kind of leaves me there. And he comes back with all these tools and he puts them down and he says, open your mouth, you know, and I'm like, what are you doing? And uh, first shot goes in, you know, Novocaine, right? Oh! Next shot goes in, oh! And then he says, okay, now this one might hurt a little bit more. And he takes a scalpel. And uh, he says, just hold still. And he proceeds to carve an inch into my abscess to relieve the pressure. It did relieve the pressure because I screamed at the top of my lungs. Scout's honor. I screamed at the top of my lungs in the doctor's office. I could just see, I could just picture the little kids out in the office going, what's going on in there? I mean, I yelled so loud and and it was like five seconds of just, ah. And after it was all done, he looked at me and he went, I've never felt that much pain in my life like in that short amount of time. And uh, sure enough, you know, in the couple, next 48 hours or so, I, I thought it was getting better. I wasn't quite sure, but we went back in just to be safe, and I was so scared. I was so scared going back in. I was so fearful that he would have to tinker around in there again. And he takes one look at it and says, oh, you're looking good. And I was like, oh, yes. And he says, but let me just open it up a little bit. Ah! Oh. Painful. I was, I was dreading this. Absolutely fearful of going back and having the prospect of this man cutting into my mouth again. Desperately fearful. You know, in our Bible story today, we're going to uh, see a level of fear that we probably can't imagine. And yet, in the end, as we hear of the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we are going to learn that the lesson of this story is to fear nothing except offending God. The title of my message today, Fear Nothing Except Offending God. Turn your Bibles to Daniel chapter 3. And the, and the artwork, by the way, that you see back there, is by a man named J.M. Hudson. It was a beautiful uh, a painting, if you will, of the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fourth 
we're going to learn in the fire in just a few moments of, of, of what took place in this story. So I thought I'd share with you that, that beautiful artwork. Well, we're, we've been going through the book of Daniel. And some of you might want a little bit of a recap. Where did we leave off a couple weeks back? I want to, I want to thank Corey for the excellent job that he did last week. I, I heard nothing but good things. So, Corey, thank you for uh, preaching for me while I was with my family. And, uh, and it's always good to, to know this pulpit is, is uh, carefully handled. But two weeks ago, we were with King Nebuchadnezzar, and he had a dream. And he asked the wise men of Babylon to interpret the dream. And not only did he ask for the interpretation, but he also asked them to tell him the dream before he even revealed it to them. Of course, none of the pagan spiritualists in Babylon had such power, but God blessed one, one man, Daniel, with the knowledge of the king's dream and its interpretation. And Daniel bravely gave the king the nature of that dream, and he told it to him. And the king fell on his knees in awe, and he said this. He said in in chapter 2, verse 47, he said, Truly your God is the God of gods, the Lord of kings, and a revealer of secrets, since you could reveal this secret. So back in the end of chapter 2, the king was amazed by the power and knowledge of the God of Israel and Daniel his servant. And the king promoted Daniel and some of his men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men figure prominently now today in our story in chapter 3. We're going to go through this uh, section by section. We're not going to read it all at once. Uh, we're going to cover a lot of text. We're going to cover the whole chapter, but we're going to do it in a way that, that moves rather quickly. So let's take a look at Daniel chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. It says this, Nebuchadnezzar, the king, made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its width 6 cubits. And he set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. And King, Babylon, or King Nebuchadnezzar sent word to gather together the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image. Excuse me, yeah, yeah, of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then a herald, a messenger, cried aloud, to you, it is commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that at the time you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery, in symphony with all kinds of music, you shall fall down and worship the gold image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. So at that time, when all the people heard the sound of the horn, the flute, harp, and lyre, and symphony with all kinds of music, with all the people, nations, and languages, they fell down and worshipped the gold image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. No sooner, no sooner does Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 2 declare the amazing power of the God of Israel No sooner does he do that, that years later, maybe a decade later, perhaps two at the most, Nebuchadnezzar erects an image. Sixty cubits high. That's approximately a hundred feet. Glenn, how how tall is this sanctuary? About 32 feet. Three times. 32? That's it? Glenn. Glenn. Wow. Wow. Looks, tall, looks taller to me, right? Three times the size of this sanctuary, a golden image. No sooner does he have a dream of, a, of an image of gold and other metals that Nebuchadnezzar erects an image in the nearby town of Dura in the Babylonian province. Only this time, this, instead of having a dream, this time he envisions it and erects it himself. An image of gold, nearly a hundred feet tall. Most likely it was constructed first of wood, and then the statue would be overlaid with melted gold that would harden over the image. Whether it was an image of the king himself or of one of the king's gods, we do not know. The scripture doesn't tell us. But whatever it was, it was a symbol of pagan spirituality and the great power and pride of Babylon and King Nebuchadnezzar. 
It's interesting, though, in, uh, you know, some, some people have, uh, some historians and archaeologists go back and forth about whether such a statue may have existed at that time, 100 feet tall, very difficult to build. There's an interesting man by the name of Julius Oppert. Take a look at Julius. There he is. He's a French-German archaeologist uh, back in the late 19th century. In 1863, Oppert discovered a large pedestal, a base, if you will, six miles southeast of Babylon with dimensions of 45 feet square by 20 feet in height. Oppert believed this to be the potential site of King Nebuchadnezzar's image. Now, he says potential you know, when he discovered it because the dimensions don't exactly fit the descriptions in the Scripture, but those, that same pedestal could have been added on years later. We don't know what might have transpired after it was initially built. It could have been uh, elaborated on further, made larger. These kinds of images were all over the ancient, uh, ancient Near East. Obelisks and other images, other statues that stood uh, great, greatly in the sky. So there's good evidence here of what the Scripture is speaking about. And Nebuchadnezzar, is he, 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 what does he do? He gathers all the leaders of the land and he brings them together to this image, to the dedication. And he appoints a herald, a spokesperson, to explain to the empire exactly what they were supposed to do with respect to the image. When the people heard the music, they would immediately fall to the ground. In a way, it was, it's kind of like musical chairs opposite, right? Your musical chairs, you know, you're going to the music, going to the music, and then what happens when it stops? You fall to the ground, you get on the seat, right? Well, here, you, you know, you're kind of walking around, walking around, walking, and then the music starts playing, and you go down, right? Musical chairs opposite. That's why there's good evidence that the Jews may have created musical chairs in defiance of King Nebuchadnezzar. I try. For the vast majority of the people, though, living in Babylon, the king's request was no big deal. The people were largely polytheistic. They worshipped many gods. And to pay heed to their king's statue and the brute power of the empire was fine by them. And besides, the old uh, worship-or-die threat was kind of significant. I mean, they didn't want to die. They didn't want to be thrown into a fiery furnace, so they happily fell prostrate when the music played. But for the Jew, for the Israelite, now captive in Babylon, perhaps for a couple decades, falling down and worshiping an image would be a grave sin in the eyes of their God. Moses had heard clearly from God on Mount Sinai, and this is what the Lord had said. Among other things, He said, You shall have no other gods before Me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or on earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. Among the Ten Commandments. Today we might think it rather silly you know, to carve an image and erect it and to bow down to it. I mean, that, that doesn't really jive with our culture in the West. It doesn't make a lot of sense to us. We, we kind of... We look at it as rather silly. But in truth, we, we worship. We fall prey to worshiping the creation rather than the Creator all the time. We all... Some have, uh, someone has rightly said that every man worships something. Every man worships something. Every man, woman, and child falls prostrate before someone or something, regardless of their philosophy or ideology. Worship involves showing respect, honor, admiration. Worship requires time. Worship includes a sense of awe towards someone or something. And so you might ask yourself, who or, or what dominates my time? Are you thinking about someone or something all the time? Who or what do I exceedingly admire? Is there someone who, who I look upon and, and find no fault? Who or what are you in awe of? Might that be one whom you are worshiping? Might that be something that you are worshiping? I don't know what it is for you. I know some of my vices. I know some of my temptations. What distracts my worship from the Lord God? 
What are you worshiping? Are you worshiping another person? Are you worshiping something, a, a hobby, something that you do constantly, all the time? Are you worshiping money, power, sex, alcohol, drugs? What are you worshiping? We don't carve an idol in this culture, but we do worship idols. In this story, too, it's, it's really hard not to see some of the parallels that we find elsewhere in Scripture, right? Um, what did Satan ask of Jesus when he tempted him in the wilderness? In the end, he says, bow down and worship me. Bow down and take your eyes off the Lord God and worship me, Satan said. And Jesus says, be gone, get out of here. It also is a prefigure. This, this Daniel story is fascinating because in Daniel 3, we see a, a, a type, a prefigure of what the Apostle John would see in his revelation. Take a look in the book of Revelation, chapter 13. And he, that is the false prophet, deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast or the Antichrist, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image of the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. He was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast. And the image of the beast should both speak and, note this, causes many who would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. History repeating itself. How often do you see the term Babylon in the book of Revelation? We see it starting here with Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And we see it coming again in the last day. The same story. Israel and the nations will be given a choice in the last day to choose whom they will serve. So also in Daniel 3, Israel was being asked to make a choice. Worship the Lord or worship the image. And for three young Jewish men, their choice would have a tremendous impact on the future of all who call upon the Lord. Take a look at verse 8. Verse 8, Therefore at that time certain Chaldeans came forward and accused the Jews. They spoke and said to the king, O king, live forever. You, O king, you have made a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, the flute, harp, lyre, psaltery, and symphony with all kinds of music shall fall down and worship the gold image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the midst of the burning furnace. Verse 12, There are certain Jews, king, whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have not paid due regard to you They do not serve your gods or worship the gold image which you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and fury, gave the command to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So they brought these men before the king. You know, we're teaching Bennett. um, I I often hear my wife when Bennett uh, whines about something that Mallory has done or comes telling something about Mallory has done. She looks at Bennett and she says, Bennett... Are you telling or are you tattling? Now, Bennett always kind of sits there and thinks about it a little bit because he's been learning what's the difference between telling and tattling. Telling is when Mallory does something that's going to hurt her or harm her or get her in, you know, somehow she's going to fall off something. And, and Mommy has always told Bennett, Bennett, you can come tell me if Mallory is going to hurt herself or someone else. Come tell me. But tattling, of course, is when Bennett's coming and saying, Mallory, Mallory's doing something over here, Mama. Mallory's doing something wrong. And we're trying to tell him the difference. We're trying to explain to Bennett the difference between telling or warning and tattling, just kind of complaining about her conduct. And so here we see the Chaldeans, right? They're not warning the king. They're not admonishing the king that, oh, my goodness, you know, this is, this is dreadful. Look. These people, they're disobeying it. No, they're, they're tattling on them, right? They're like little kids. They're going to tattle on Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They're like little children here. And they go up to the king and they say, King, oh king, these guys over here, they're not bowing down when the music plays. And king, oh king, they're not doing it like we are. Why are they tattling? Well, why, do we, why does any sibling tattle, right? I suggest they they tattle for one of two reasons. Always. Always one of two reasons. Either number one, they want to get their brother or sister in trouble so they can get a swat on the back. 
but, excuse me, whatever. Or, number two, to gain the favor of their parents, right? So, so it's, either, it's either I want them to be punished, I want them to be disciplined, so I'm going to tell, tell about what they did, or I want to engender myself to my parents and be like, see, Mom and Dad, look how good I am. You guys all seem to know about that. A brother does not tattle on his sister because he has a vibrant, innate sense of righteousness that he wishes her to emulate. He tattles on her because he doesn't like her and he wants her to get a spanking or because he wants to look good in front of mom or dad. So also, we can be quite sure that these Chaldeans, they weren't tattling on Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego because they, they had this innate sense of righteousness and holiness. They were doing so because they didn't like them. And they wanted them to be punished. And number two, they envied them. And they wanted their positions of power. Remember back in chapter 2, they had been appointed to serve over some of the provinces of Babylon. And these Chaldeans, the fact that they got an audience with the king, indicated that they themselves were leaders. Though perhaps not quite in the positions of power that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were. Surely they must have been thinking, how is it that these Jews once captured by our king, now serve in his administration. They despised the Jews. They envied them. And they wanted them dead. Let me say that again. They despised the Jews. They envied them. And they wanted them dead. It's funny how 2,500 years later, we see that same mantra playing out today. How did the king respond? Look down at verse 13 says this, uh, let's see here, let me get it right. Okay, then Nebuchadnezzar said, Chaldeans, are you telling or are you tattling? No, that wasn't it. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in a rage and fury, gave the command to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego before him. He says, bring them to me. And let's continue, verse 13. So, the king, so they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar spoke to them, is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? that you do not serve my gods or worship the gold image which I have set up? Now if you are ready at the time you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the harp, the lyre, the psaltery, in symphony with all kinds of music, and you fall down and worship the image which I have made, good. But if you do not worship, you shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God? Who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this manner. If that is the case, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and He will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the image, the gold image, which you have set up. Having been persuaded by the Chaldeans, the king commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego come before him. And he threatens them. And he says to them, when when the music starts, you get on your knees. Or you will die. And what God will be able to save you then? When the music starts, you get on your knees, or you will die. And what God will be able to save you then? We look at this and think that's, that's, pretty, that's pretty drastic. It's quite a drastic measure for a ruler to give. And yet, did you know that this, um, this same drastic measure is being played out today? Across the seas, in another land, I want to introduce you to a, a Christian pastor. His name is Yusef Nadarkhani. He's an Iranian Christian pastor. We've had him on the back of our bulletin now for about three or four months, I believe, on the, on the prayer list. He is imprisoned in Iran. And he was sentenced to death by the Iranian Supreme Court months ago. His crime was converting to Islam. 
He had gone month, uh, he had gone two years ago to register his house church, Christian house church. He had gone to the local province and he had gone to register the, the church with the state, which was required by law. And as he was attempting to register, they arrested him and prosecuted him with apostasy and with attempting to convert others to Islam. Or to, to Christianity, excuse me. Pastor Yusuf has been incarcerated now for two years and uh, many, many... Thank, thank the Lord for uh, organizations like Voice of the Martyrs and uh, Persecution.org and, and so many others that are working tirelessly to get to raise awareness for this man and to get him uh, a fair trial. Uh, the most recent update for him is is this: um, the trial has been has been sent back to the local court. The Supreme Court has actually sent the trial back to the local court in Iran and said, have there been any irregularities with the investigation? That's all they're asking. They've already sentenced him, but they're giving time for the local uh, province to come back to the Supreme Court and give an answer whether there have been any irregularities in charging this man with this crime, if there was anything that they missed. And, uh, of course, you know, we largely expect that answer to be no um, because of the nature of that local province and its leaders. But God can do anything. What's most notable about this case is that the Supreme Court had also in its opinion against the man in its sentence, it said that if he recanted his Christian faith, the charges will be dropped. If this man recants his faith, he will not die. If he doesn't, he will be sentenced to death probably within the month, next month. I ask you to write his name down. Write his name down. I want you to pray for this man. I want you to ask God for his deliverance. I want you to ask God for his strength. He is going to be tested right now, just as these men that we read about are going to be tested. Not every Christian is up for that challenge. But let us pray that Yusuf, is up for that challenge, that he would boldly, boldly claim the name of Christ, even at, in the threat of death. Here we are, some 2,500 years later, 2,000 years plus later, and a world ruler has told a follower of the Lord God of Israel, fall down and worship or you will die. What about the response of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Let's go back to the text for a moment. Shadrach, verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If that is the case, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. And He will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. Tom Constable, one of the Hebrew scholars, points out that the word we, in verse 16, is emphatic. In other words, the men responded by saying something like this. Our words, O king, aren't sufficient to give you an answer. Our words aren't sufficient to give you an answer. Nothing we can say can convince you of the reason for our defiance. Only one thing can convince you, and it is the action of our God. Our God, verse 17, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And He will deliver us from your hand, O King. Now, had the young men stopped right there at verse 17, I suspect that Nebuchadnezzar would have at least thought twice about condemning them to death. After all, he had already had a previous encounter with the God of Israel in chapter 2, some years before. And here he would have been hearing a statement by other followers of this same God that, He will deliver us from your hand, O king. I suspect that Nebuchadnezzar would have thought twice about what he would have done next. But they continued in verse 18. And notice what they say say next. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the golden image which you have set up. But if not... Almighty King, our words, our words 
are not sufficient to convince you of our defiance, to convince you of why we're defying you in this way. But God's action will convince you. He will save us from the burning, fiery furnace. He will deliver us from our hand. But even if He doesn't, we still won't bow down and worship the golden image. You know, part of me wonders at that moment if Nebuchadnezzar and his advisors didn't burst out in laughter. I mean, really, think about this for a moment. What they were claiming was this. Our God will save us, but even if He doesn't, we won't worship your golden image. Nebuchadnezzar and his advisors probably thought, yeah, because you'll be dead, right? Yeah, because you'll be burning. They gave this caveat, which in the eyes of the pagans would have been like, what are you talking about? You can't give that caveat. You can't claim your God is all-powerful and then and say that He's able to save you and then give a little, but if not, there were to be no caveats if this God was all-powerful in the eyes of Nebuchadnezzar, in the eyes of his advisors. There were, there were to be no hedging of this, no fudging around. If He can save you, show us. If not, you're going to die. Think about this for a moment. Which religious group wishing to substantiate the veracity of their faith, tells an audience that even if their God fails to help them, they will still worship Him. Think about that. Which religious group out there, wishing to show that their faith is true, tells an audience that even if their God fails them, they will cling fast. Such a people would either be crazy or they would have a knowledge of something so powerful, something so profound, that even earthly demise could not blot out the abundant life that awaited them on the other side. They'd either be nuts, or they would know something that no one else knew. That even in earthly failure, they knew their God would still deliver them. The early church father Jerome caught this in the text. And notice what he says. He says this, Look at their faith. Look at their faith. We believe that He is able to save us. But if it should be that our sins prevent Him, we will still believe in Him who will not deliver us. We do not believe in this life, but in the future life. Nor do we believe in Him in order to escape burning here, but in order to escape passing from this fire into another fire fires of hell. Go ahead then. Prepare your furnace. This heat, this fire is our purgation. Happy is He whose help is the God of Jacob. Jerome caught this as he read it. He realized that no one would say this. No sane person would say what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said unless they were profoundly convinced that regardless of whether they were burned or saved, they would gain. We believe He will save us. But even if He doesn't, we will still defy Him. These men were convinced of something that Nebuchadnezzar and all of Babylon had no idea of. No idea of the power of. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, like Job before them, looked in the eyes of Nebuchadnezzar and said, even though He may slay me, Yet will I trust Him. Job 13.15 Though He may slay me, yet will I trust Him. I've been reading the book uh, 90 Minutes in Heaven. Uh, it's a very unique book. How many of you have read 90 Minutes in Heaven? Alright, a few of you. Uh, it's a good book. A man by the name of Don Piper. Uh, he had a catastrophic accident on a bridge. He was a Christian man, a pastor. <clears throat> huge accident, and he expired right then and there on the, on the road for 90 minutes. He was declared dead by the paramedics. And 90 minutes later, after the prayers of one particular man who was right there with him at all time, almost at all times, praying over him, asking God to even bring him back, to bless him. It was a, it was a crazy prayer that this man was praying, but nevertheless, after 90 minutes, Don woke up, came back to life. Resurrected. And 
through the next number of years, he began this huge recovery process of getting getting his body back in order. It was a gruesome, gruesome experience as you read about those chapters. But while he was gone from this earth, Don Piper claims that he went to heaven. And he describes it in some of the chapters in this book. I don't know. I don't know whether to believe him or not. I'll say this. I have no reason not to believe him. Um, he himself was reluctant to share it. He didn't share it for like over a year, his experience, because he says it was too sacred. It was too powerful. And as I read his account of heaven, he, he spent about two or three chapters describing heaven. I found myself with this abscess in my mouth. I found myself just glued to the pages and just hanging on every word as he described the inexplicable joy that he felt as he came into the presence of God and all his children. And I I just, I can tell you, even though I was suffering in pain this past week and hurting and, and, and in agony really, as I was reading these chapters, I was so uplifted. I was so encouraged. I was so blessed by it. And I just I thought, you know, how little am I thinking about the future? How rarely am I thinking about heaven, about the kingdom of God, about where I'm going? Friends, if you want encouragement, listen, these times are tough. Look around. We've got a nation that's hurting. We've got a world that's hurting. We've got political leaders that have no idea what they're doing, it seems like, right? All sides. They can't figure anything out. There's, there's a lot of strain and depression and economic hardship and frustration and families breaking apart. What do, what do we look at? What do we, how do we find joy again? I say we look at what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego looked at. They looked at what lie ahead. They said, I don't care if He saves us or not. I know where I'm going. I know what's ahead. And so I will hold fast. What a source of encouragement it is to stay focused on the treasure that awaits you in heaven. Amen? I urge you, any of you who are depressed, any of you who are discouraged, I want you this week, I want you to meditate and study on the passages about heaven in your Bible. Go to the back of your Bible, find your topical index, Identify all those passages on heaven and start reading them. Start reading them. Go to the end of Revelation and start reading what awaits you. Because it will bring you joy. It will bring you, it will lift your spirit. It will take whatever's happening in this life and make it nothing but a, a, a speck of time. I can get through this when I know what's ahead of me. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were convinced that God would deliver them no matter what. But the king was not convinced of their words. And so notice as, as we continue in verse 19, Then Nebuchadnezzar was full of fury, and the expression on his face changed. And he spoke and commanded that they heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated. And he commanded certain mighty men of valor who were in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and cast them into the fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their coats, their trousers, their turbans, and their outer other garments, and they were cast into the midst of the burning fiery furnace. Did we not cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? And they answered and said to the king, True, O king, yes, we did. Verse 25, Well, then look, he answered, I see four men loose walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. Then Nebuchadnezzar went near the mouth of the burning fiery furnace and spoke, saying, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, come out and come here. Then they came from the midst of the fire. Don't you wish, boy, don't you wish you could have seen this. Think about that for a moment. Imagine you were there. And you watched three men get pushed into a fire. A fire so hot 
that the men pushing them in were incinerated. As they're pushed into the fire, you watch and you see their bonds burn off. They have been tied in all their garments and their turban. They have been wrapped in, in rope, tied up in knots, pushed in. And as they get in there, the bonds burn up immediately. Three men thrown bound into a furnace only to have their bonds burned off and to be walking in the midst of the fire. Walking and talking together with yet a fourth man whose form is like the Son of God. There's no way Nebuchadnezzar had any idea what he was looking at. As he watched this, as his advisors, they watched this. I don't know how their minds processed it. All he could tell was that this fourth being was considerably different from the other three. In truth, we can't be completely sure. We can't be completely sure that this fourth person was Jesus. The word Son of God cited by Nebuchadnezzar can also be translated Son of the Gods. A plural phrase. It can also be Son of God. The phrase is used in Scripture of both angels and of the Messiah. I, for one, believe it was Jesus, since Jesus is referred to on multiple occasions elsewhere in Daniel's prophecy. Remember, He was the uncut stone in chapter 2. He's going to be the Ancient of Days that you see later on, coming with the clouds. So Jesus is all over Daniel's prophecy. The Messiah is all over. And that it wouldn't be Him here you know, it doesn't make a lot of sense. It, it might not have been. It may have been an angel. Likely was the Messiah. And if so, it would be considered what's called a theophany, or more precisely, a, a Christophany. That is, an appearance of God, an appearance of the pre-incarnate Christ. And actually, next week, we're going to take a small break. We're going to stop Daniel for just a moment, and I want to discuss the issue of theophanies and Christophanies. We're going to go through Scripture. And, and talk about what it looked like when God came down in different forms. A burning bush, uh, maybe a, a kingly priest before Abraham, wrestling with Jacob, and so many others. We're going to talk about Theophanies and Christophanies next week for just one Sunday. But back to our text for just a moment. He says in verse 25, the king, Look, I see four men loose walking in the midst of the fire, and they're not hurt. And the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. Don't you wish you could have even been there in the fire listening to what they were saying? I wish I could have been a fly on a wall. I, wait a minute. That would be burned. I wish I could be like, like a turban on the head of Abednego listening in to the conversation that was happening between Jesus and these three men. They, they get in there and they're looking at Him and they're like, Oh my goodness, the Lord has saved us. <laughs> Who are you, Lord? What, what is your name? They didn't know His name. Tell us, how, how did you do this? How did you hear our prayer? What will happen next? What are you going to do for our people, the Jews? We've been held captive, Lord. What was their conversation? We don't know. But surely those men went into that fire sweating, fearful, but knowing assuredly they would be delivered no matter what. And as they got in alive, they must have rejoiced. They must have been overjoyed, overjoyed with, with gladness. Then Nebuchadnezzar went near the mouth and said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God. Look at that label. Look at that change of heart. Servants of the Most High God, come out. Come here. Verse 27, as we finish up. And the satraps and the administrators, the governors, the king's counselors gathered together. And they saw these men on, whom, on whose bodies the fire had no power. The hair of their head was not singed, nor were their garments affected. And the smell of fire was not on them. And Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel or his servant and delivered his servants who trusted in him. And they have frustrated the king's word and yielded their bodies that they should not serve nor worship any god except their own god. 
Therefore, I make a decree, said Nebuchadnezzar, that any people, nation, or language which speaks anything amiss against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be cut in pieces, and their houses shall be made an ash heap, because there is no other God who can deliver like this. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. The fire had no power over them. Their hair on their head was not singed. Again, what are, we, what are we looking at here? Are we just looking at a story that talks about those three? No. You are looking at a type, a prefigure of what would happen when Jesus Christ went to the cross. He died, right? But then three days later, He arose. And the disciples looked at Him and the people looked at Him and said, How did you do this? The power of death. You overcame it. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the power of the fire had no sway over them. Their hairs were not singed. They were not phased. So also Jesus, some 600 years later, came to earth, died on a cross, rose again. Death had no power. So also you and me, years from now, when we go into the ground, our spirit will go with the Lord. And on the last day, our bodies will be raised back up. And death will have no victory. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? It's nowhere. The king publicly blessed them for rightly defying him in favor of the most powerful God that Nebuchadnezzar had ever witnessed. And he made a decree in all the land that if anyone spoke ill of the God of Israel, they would be executed. Executed. And he promoted these men to even higher positions of power and authority in all the land of Babylon. So much for the tattletalers, right? What can we take from this story? What can we, what can we learn from it? Uh, John Chrysostom was an early church father. I, I've, been, I've been going nuts studying the early church fathers. I really like some of their take on Daniel. And he said something in the end of one of his uh, comments on it. It was actually a different comment in another part of a book that related to Daniel. I wanted to close with this. This is what he says. I have told you this history, this, this story, with good reason that you may learn that whether it is the wrath of a king or the violence of soldiers or the envy of enemies or captivity or destitution or fire or furnace or 10,000 other terrors, nothing will work to shame or terrify a righteous person. I say all this now in order that we may fear nothing except... Offending God. Fear nothing except offending God. You have no higher calling. You will stand before no man when this life is over. No man will judge you. No earthly leader will evaluate your life. No person on this planet will be the one to rule, to, to judge and to adjudicate what you did in this life. There will only be one. You will only answer to one. And to one alone, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I've been doing some, uh, some counseling uh, recently with a, a variety of people actually. Uh, different, different scenarios. Uh, no one here. Uh, but I've been doing some, some counseling and some back and forth with different people in my life. Um, and I'm noticing a pattern in, in these conversations with various people. They are more concerned. They are more concerned with being justified in this life before men than they are of being justified in the next life before God. In my conversations with uh, the, these individuals, I'm noticing a pattern. I'm seeing men and women who are more concerned with holding on to their earthly power at all costs. Compromising at all costs so that they might hold on to their earthly power, their earthly pride, all the while they are paying no attention to the fact that God is watching. He is watching this. And I almost, um, I've almost been pulling my hair out looking at them saying, do you get it? You're not, you're not acting in this life before me. I'm not your judge. 
what you do right now, it matters before God. It matters before God. And so, men and women, I ask in your life, as you live your life, as you try, we're all trying to get a step ahead, get a better job, move up the, the, the corporate ladder. I don't know what your goals are. I don't know where that next step you want to go. But listen, it is not worth everything. It is not worth compromise. It is not worth relinquishing your values. It is not worth giving up what the Word of God says for you to do, for you to get ahead, for you to get a step ahead, for you to push somebody out and say, see, I held on to my power, I held on to my control. We are standing, we are living all of our words, all of our actions, they are before one judge. And so I would rather forsake earthly power and pride and control that I might on the last day be justified before God. I don't mean, I don't mean to, to, to be justified in, in, in the salvation sense, but for God to justify me in the sense that He points at me and says, Well done! Well done, Neil! You relinquished that power, that control, that pride at that moment when you could have held on to it. You relinquished it because you knew it was better for you. Well done. Whose accolades are you looking for? What power? From from whom do you wish to gain power? From men or from God? Fear nothing. Fear nothing. Except offending God. You can take the easy way out if you want. And you can go maybe 60, 70, 80, 90 years of living in this life taking the easy way out. But a wise person knows that each day they live is before an audience of one. Fear nothing except offending God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank You, Lord, for this wonderful story in Daniel. We thank You for the testimony of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Lord. We, we, we do not know, Lord, what we would have done in their shoes. Would we have compromised, Lord? Would we have recanted? Or would we have held fast, knowing that our earthly life is lived for You and You alone? God, help us to have that resolve. Help us to have that strength, I pray, for each one of us. Lord, I pray for Pastor Youssef in Iran. Help him to have that resolve right now. Lord, his life hangs in the balance. But, and the world watches. But Lord, more importantly, you are watching. And I pray for Pastor Youssef that you give him strength beyond measure. That he would know unequivocally that he is not interested in justification before these wicked men in that country. He is interested in being justified before You. He's interested in on the, on the last day to, be, to have You look upon Him, Lord, and to say, well done, good and faithful servant. Give us that same resolve, Lord, all of us, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen.